everybody, Randy here. Before we get to today's episode, I want to thank a couple of our sponsors. The first being Gooder. This episode is brought to you by Gooder. Gooder makes $25 active sunglasses for anyone. Their polarized golf sunglasses are lightweight, comfortable. They don't move when you swing. And again, they start at just $25. Golf Gooder sunglasses are built with their golf-specific lens technology. That means all the HD contrast and performance without the hefty price tag. They're 100% UV protective and 100% polarized. Their frames are snug and lightweight with a comfortable fit to prevent bouncing, whether you're playing 18, heading out for a run, or joining friends for some beers. And right now, you get free U.S. standard shipping on all orders over $50. Gooder's offering 30-day free returns, and all their sunglasses come with a one-year warranty. Try them out now. Treat yourself to a pair or two, and, and I do mean a pair or two. They're great to keep one in the golf bag, keep one in the car, maybe keep a pair at the office. Uh, at, again, at just $25, you can certainly afford more than one pair Go to gooder.com, that's G-O-O-D-R.com, and get 15% off your entire order when you use code TRAPDRAW, all one word, TRAPDRAW, at checkout. And right now, as I mentioned, all orders over $50 get free shipping in the United States, so use that code TRAPDRAW for 15% off at www.goodr.com. Look good, golf gooder. Can't thank them enough for sponsoring the Trap Draw. And the other sponsor I want to thank right now is Whoop. Today's episode is brought to you by Whoop, the personalized digital fitness and health coach and official fitness wearable of the PGA and LPGA Tours. You can monitor your recovery, sleep, training, and health with personalized recommendations and coaching feedback with Whoop. Train smarter, recover faster, sleep better, and now feel healthier with Whoop and their all-new Whoop 4.0 the latest, most advanced fitness wearable on the market. The all-new 4.0 is smaller, smarter, and designed with new biometric tracking, including skin temperature, blood oxygen, and more. The device also features the new Smart Alarm, designed to wake you up feeling refreshed and ready to take on the day. Plus, it was designed with their new Anywhere technology, so you can wear it with the Whoop body sensor, enhanced technical garments. It's boxers, shorts, compression tops, bralettes, leggings and so much more. Just remove the band from the device, slide it into the garment of your choice, and you're discreetly tracking your daily activity with Whoop. The all-new waterproof device is free when you sign up for a Whoop 4.0 membership. For any members, if you have six months left of membership on your account, you can upgrade now and get the 4.0 for free. Right now, Whoop is offering 15% off when you use the code NLU15 at checkout. So go to whoopwhoop.com, enter NLU15 at checkout, to save 15%. We thank Whoop for sponsoring the Trap Draw, and now let's get into today's episode. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome back to the Trap Draw Podcast. My name is Randy. Uh, this is a tennis episode. It is Wimbledon week, although I must say up front, 
I'm recording with my guest uh, a little prior to Wimbledon week, so we don't know the draws yet, but still plenty to talk about. My guest is David Law. He is a broadcaster, a podcaster. He's a speaker. He has worked in the game of tennis for uh, well over 20 years. The last 10, he is the co-host of the Tennis Podcast alongside Catherine Whitaker and Matt Roberts. It, I can say, David, it's my favorite tennis podcast. I love what you guys do. Um, and it's just you guys cover the men's and women's game in an in-depth, smart, funny fashion. Really enjoy it. So, David, thrilled to talk to you. Welcome to the Trap Draw. How are you today? Well, I'm very well. and I'm a lot better after hearing that intro and, and a little bit surprised and taken aback and overwhelmed to be honest because as you you know we're we're big listeners of yours and um and this isn't just a an agreed loving uh but i mean i yeah i I was amazed when i found out that you listened to us to be quite honest um and bowled over to be honest and and yeah my my pleasure to be with you too kind uh just the mutual admiration society here we got going i believe i haven't asked you this but i believe do you live let's let's start here do you live in London? Is London home for you? And if so, no. oh, okay, all right. I well, live. I live about 120 miles away from London. Nearest big city is Birmingham, um, so right in the centre of England. And uh, this is where I was born and grew up. And um, I've led a slightly strange life since university. I did university and, and a lot of my work is in London, but I mean, I've lived in Monte Carlo um, down south of France because I worked for the ATP, the pro- professional tour of tennis, men's tennis. And uh, then I lived for two and a half years in Zagreb in Croatia, uh, which is was to live with my now wife. Um, and then she made the uh, the interesting decision to 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 give all that up and come and live near to Birmingham in England in a little place called Solihull. So yeah, I'm about 120 miles away from London, and uh, much as I love London for work, I do not intend to ever live there. Gotcha, gotcha. I and uh, so I guess my question, my first question, I I know you were at the French Open and and you stayed in Paris, obviously. Will you go down and, and stay in London for the duration of the tournament? Or is that something where you can commute back and forth? No, I'll be there throughout. Um, and it's it's a pretty full-on job, Wimbledon, for me. Because uh, whilst at one or two of the, the Grand Slams, I'm likely to be just concentrating on the tennis podcast and doing that you know, as the main reason that I'm there. Um, at Wimbledon, I'll be combining that with also working for BBC Radio 5 Live, which is the main national sports station in the UK and commentating on on the matches on site. So the days, the days are long, I suppose a little bit like golf tournaments, you know, the days are really long if you do if you want to do them properly. The nights are even longer because we re- we record daily shows for the podcast literally after the last ball is struck and then the whole editing process. So you know, it's it's an all day, all night kind of existence, and uh, yeah, we try to stay quite close. Golf majors are just four days. I can't imagine. You know, you guys get two weeks. That's uh, that's quite an effort. So, best of luck to you. Uh, I know it must be a, a special one though for you being in England. My next question would be the All England Lawn and Tennis Club. David, I'm just an ignorant American. I've never been over there. Talk about the All England Lawn and Tennis Club what it's like during Wimbledon week, what it's like maybe the rest, you know, the other 50 weeks of the year, where is it? 
kind of around London. Help, help me with some context, if you don't mind. Okay, well, the, geographically, it's in southwest London. Um, it is a tennis club year-round. It's not like a, a stadium that gets converted into a concert arena or anything like that. It is, it is a dedicated tennis club. It has members. Um, it is, it's pretty big, at least it's big to me, whether it, whether it would appear and feel big to you as somebody maybe who's, who's been to, to big, much bigger stadia. I mean, the center court at Wimbledon only, only houses about 16,000 people, whereas the U S open, the Arthur Ashe stadium would have 24,000. And obviously, you know, the U S sports like NFL and, and many of the arenas there are going to have up to a hundred thousand seats. So, but, but it's, it's permanent, and but it has a real mystique and style and tradition and look and feel all of its own. The main centre court building is covered in ivy, and it, the the colours are permanent. It's a dark sort of mid green and purple all the way through. You don't see much in the way of sponsorship branding at all anywhere, although increasingly they are a much more successful commercial outfit now than they than they used to be or not not successful but they certainly activate their sponsorships a lot more they do a lot more sponsorship work but you still don't really see them if you're a tv viewer or if you're around it's all very low key and that's entirely in keeping with with what the place is supposed to be about and i and i think in terms of its standing within the sport probably the closest thing to it is augusta national is 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 my guess now i've never been to augusta that's kind of one of my bucket list places one day to go and, and visit but it's kind of how i imagine it they do things their own way when they make decisions they're off their own bat they refuse to be dictated to they're not always popular but they are leaders i think in terms of just having a a view on things and and pushing it through um and I think that they've they've modernised a lot over the last few years. They've they've renovated the All England Club. They've made it work really well for for visiting media and spectators and that kind of sort of thing. But it still has the same feel. And I think one of the most interesting things about it, and I don't know how this compares to golf events, but it's a it's probably the only tennis tournament, certainly of that s- size that has a queue to get in and you can you can get in on the day if you but you're literally camping overnight in a field to get in for days on end and I, i've done this before my tennis career started uh, working in the media in 1995 i went down with a friend of mine alex kennison and who was a university friend of mine and we went with his parents we pitched a tent we spent two nights in it just to get in um, we didn't wash for days on end, and this is this is people are doing this voluntarily. Um, but it, but it's to me, it's magical. Not everybody agrees with me about that, but but I think it's wonderful. God, I, I, it's on my bucket list, my my sports bucket list. I get into Wimbledon, being able to watch, uh, just wonder the whole premises. Um, you know the what, what's the they have the big like center lawn, I believe. Uh, being able to watch a a match or two from center court, all, all things I, I really, really want to do someday. So uh, hopefully it's a special place. If you get a chance, I mean, I think one of the beauties is you get tickets for an individual court. I mean, you can either get center court or court one. Both of those courts have roofs on them now. So unlike in 
2001 when our British Tim Henry was trying to win Wimbledon and he had a four-day semi-final interrupted by rain day after day and nobody's got anything to watch. At least there are two courts with roofs on now. Um, but then there are there's another sort of 16, 17 courts that you could just buy a grounds pass for for a lot less money and just wander around and be really close to the, the matches and, and take your pick and go from court to court. And I think... I still do that today after 20, 25, 27 years on and love it, really. It's wonderful. Yeah. Ah, fabulous, fabulous. Um, well, let's start. You, you mentioned Wimbledon being unafraid to, to make some tough decisions, perhaps some unpopular decisions. Uh, if, if there's any controversy that's going to hang over this championship, it's with Wimbledon's decision to ban Russian and Belarusian players from the competition this year. They made that decision back in April, uh, in May, the ATP and the WTA, the, the governing bodies of the men's and women's tennis uh, associations, respectively, they made the decision to strip Wimbledon of any official ranking points, essentially making Wimbledon a big exhibition this year. Uh, you have much better feel for the timeline of these decisions and, and what went into them. If you don't mind, can you kind of walk me through how Wimbledon arrived at this decision? And then, you know, is it something that you agree with, disagree with? Uh, I know that's a tough question to put to you right from the start, but curious how you shake out on this. No, well, I mean, you're right. It is one of the biggest stories in our world at the moment in the tennis world. And, and it is so divisive. It has really divided opinion and uh, and kind of torn the, the sport apart and the locker room apart. It's it's not something that I've ever encountered before. I've, I don't think I've ever come across a story where where I really don't feel confident about where I stand. But I mean, just to just to go back in time, obviously uh, the invasion of Ukraine took place, and there were players very well-known players high up in the, t in the tennis rankings from Ukraine who were actually having to flee the country. And they were sharing videos of doing that. Um, players like Diana Yastremska had to leave her family and, and showed the moment she left her family. Marta Kostyuk, these are, these are top 50 players on the women's side um, who, were, who were leaving the country and, and telling us about their experiences and telling us what their families were going through. Um, on, on the men's side, there were former players like Sergei Stokowski, who 10 years ago beat Roger Federer in the second round of Wimbledon. And, uh, and he went the other way. He, was, he went into the country, took up arms and became part of the, the forces out there. So these were, these were vivid images. Um, at the same time, you'd got Russian players like Andrei Rublev, who's a top 10 player now, who when the invasion happened, he was, he was playing tennis matches and signing his name on the camera lens. They, they offer the camera lens for the player to sign their signature. And he put a message of no war on that. So you've got situations like this happening on a very small scale for the players to, to tell their own personal stories. And then you've got well, what, what are the actual authorities going to do about this? And the first thing they did, all of them pretty much removed the, the national flags of Russian and Belarusian players from the draw. So they were allowed to carry on playing, but you couldn't see their flags. You couldn't see their, the initials of their country. RUS was removed from all the websites and everything. Um, a little bit like you see at the Olympics. 
in recent times with in regard to the drug situation. Um, but Wimbledon and I think kind of off their own back, but also encouraged by the, the British government, felt that this was not going far enough in any way. And they felt that any uh, any player, and particularly I think because if you look at the, the tennis scene, Russia has the world number one male tennis player at the moment in Daniel Medvedev. And I think that they, they, they had as part of this in their mind, well, what if he plays and wins Wimbledon whilst this invasion is going on? And uh, uh, how can we how can we stomach that? How can we let that happen? And uh, and they made the decision um, a couple of months ago that they would prevent any Russian or Belarusian player from entering Wimbledon this year. Um, the the tours, the WTA and the ATP on the men's side, immediately responded by calling this discrimination. Um, there were other figures like Billie Jean King. Who, uh, who who who's agreed with that and said no player should be discriminated against simply by where they are born. It's not these players' fault that their country is acting in this way. Wimbledon were adamant that uh, the their participation could be used as propaganda by Vladimir Putin and, and Russia, um, and so they stuck to the guns. The ATP and the WTA then, as you as you referenced in your overview. Decided, okay, well, we're not, we're not, we're not comfortable with this, and they stripped them of ramp ranking points, which is the first time that's ever happened. We've had boycott. We had a boycott in 1973, where um, where the male players, a massive amount of them, refused to play because they were objecting to some treatment of one of their members, one of the players, but nothing like this. And and you had this stand standoff, therefore, between the tours and Wimbledon, but. The other Grand Slam tournaments, the other majors, the French Open allowed Russian and Belarusian players to play. We've just had an announcement that the US Open is also going to allow Russian and Belarusian players to play at the end of August. So Wimbledon are on their own in terms of this position. The only other organization taking the same stand at the same time is the British Lawn Tennis Association. So they look after the other British tournaments going on at the moment, and they've done the same thing. Um, But it's caused... Huge ructions within the sports. Um, most players don't agree with it, with, with the decision. Um, they also don't agree, most players, with the decision to strip the event of ranking points because, as you said, it effectively makes it an exhibition. So nobody's happy. And um, from my own perspective on, our, on the tennis podcast, we, 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 we've just wrestled with this over and over because how can you how can you see the images that we're seeing from Ukraine and 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 not think that there's a point that Wimbledon are making that is valid, but also how can you not think well these players have done nothing themselves, so why are they getting banned? It's such a difficult situation to come down on one side of. I think I am ultimately uh, of the opinion that it's probably the right thing to do but it's i don't feel good about it do you put a a mental asterisk on on the tournament because somebody like medvedev and and even andre rublev who's who's also a comfortably in the top 10 as well uh that that these guys aren't participating is it gonna take away from the eventual winner at all in, in your opinion i think for some people it will for me it doesn't and I'm aware of it. I acknowledge it. 
but it's not the first time a player will have won one of those Grand Slam tournaments without other top players there. And I look at the Australian Open of this year that Rafael Nadal won and Novak Djokovic wasn't allowed in the country because he was unvaccinated. And we had that whole fallout. And, you know, supporters of Novak Djokovic will say that Rafael Nadal's victory will forever be tainted because Novak Djokovic wasn't there. That's that's just inevitable. Um, players have suffered injury and, and somebody else has won the tournament. So personally, I don't look at it that way, but there will certainly be people who do. Last question before we move on to the tournament itself. Uh, in, in your opinion or in folks that you've talked to, do you think Wimbledon got caught off guard a little bit being the only tournament to uh, institute these measures? Do you think they were expecting the, the French and the U.S. Open to follow suit? I think they probably were expecting more backup than this. Uh, yeah. I think that they were taken aback by the outpouring of anger and uh, upset over it generally. I think that they were encouraged by the fact that the, the British government stood behind them. And I think that there was a divide. I think that if you did a poll of the general public in Britain, as opposed to just the tennis bubble and tennis world, I think that the overall British public would be much more supportive of Wimbledon's decision. But I think that they thought that the US Open and the French Open would be would be backing them up here, or 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 that they certainly wouldn't be the only ones. I, I just can't help, and maybe we can even get into it at the end. Golf is currently undergoing this this huge transformation with the introduction of the Live Golf League, which is obviously mm. sponsored by Saudi Arabia. I know that's something you've wondered on your podcast will will saudi arabia will, will this model come to tennis eventually and just just hearing you wrestle with what's right what's fair you know that's stuff that that we've been wrestling with as well and yeah they're just it just doesn't seem like there are any easy black and white correct answers so um, no and, and i also don't know how this ends because this may not be a one-year only situation right and you know we may be in a we may have years of this conflict going on, this invasion and you know the response to that invasion going on. And how does how does Wimbledon get out of this? How does it not how does it let Russian and Belarusian players back in and when and why? You know, the, the these are questions we don't have answers to yet. Um, I think also there was talk about whether the ranking points for last year might be allowed to stay on a player's total because it's a kind of rolling 12-month ranking. But from what I can gather, both sides have just dug their heels in. So you've got players like, the irony is Novak Djokovic, who won Wimbledon last year, loses his 2,000 points for winning them when this Wimbledon comes around. And Daniel Medvedev, who's the, the guy from Russia, becomes the world number one again. Yeah. And these these are just and there's there are a lot of players that have just had the week of their lives last year and they can't defend those ranking points they just lose them. Hmm. Well, moving moving into the tournament itself, I, I mentioned at the top we are recording before any draws have been released, and I, I'll preface kind of our whole conversation with it, it. You know, when we talk about who do you like and picks to win and dark horses, a lot of that is predicated on where they end up in the draw. So we're going to discuss this without the benefit of, of knowing the exact draws, but I, I still think we can have a, a great conversation. 
before I ask you about specific names, though, I, I'd love to start here and, and just get your opinion. When, when we talk about grass court tennis, what, what are the attributes that that grass court tennis uh, favors? What, what, what are the, the styles and, and the types of game that lend itself to being very successful at Wimbledon? Well, first and foremost, I think it's, it's a really um, relevant question because it is so different. It is so different from tennis that you will see on a hard court at the US Open and even more different to the tennis we saw just a few weeks ago on the clay courts, which is made of crushed brick and is they're, they're running around on this orange court sliding into the ball. It is so different. Um, it's it's maybe less different than it used to be because they slightly changed the grass courts that they used. The, the, the composition of it is slightly different. Um, back in John McEnroe's day, 30, 40 years ago, there was not a chance that a, a clay quarter would have had a chance, really. Um, maybe Dawn Borg being the exception, he managed to win on both. But these are players on grass that are able to... Uh, achieve because they have incredible balance. They can get very low to the ground. You'll often see players hitting shots, crouching, and they steer the ball and hit it flat rather than hitting loads and loads of topspin. That's typically what a grass court player is able to do. Um, They're usually players that have a very big serve um, that shoots through the surface. And, uh, you know, if you're tall and You'd be right, Randy. Um, <laughs> you know, if but you've increasingly re- recently you've they play a lot truer than they used to. There used to be loads of bad bounces thirty years ago. So a guy with a big serve and a decent volley who would run in after the ball and knock a volley away, they'd get a bad bounce. And a guy who's trying to be a baseliner at the back of the court had very little chance to 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 make a passing shot. But yeah, it's about serves and returns, often quick fire points rather than on the clay courts, the French Open, where you can get 30, 40 shot rallies. Um, that, that's that's really the difference. And where does grass court tennis rank uh, among your favorite surfaces personally? You know, uh, obviously hard court, clay court, grass. Uh, where where do your preferences lie? You mean to, to watch? I've only yeah, ever played watch. on grass. Yeah. I've played yeah. on grass once in my life, Randy. And I tell you, in the in the first rally, I thought, oh, I've cracked this. I, <laughs> I did hit a passing <laughs> shot past this guy rushing in at me. I think I, it was the only point I won in about an hour. Anyway, um, to watch, I mean, look, I grew up watching Wimbledon. It was the only tennis tournament really available to me as a kid uh, to watch on TV. And I started watching it in 1981. My first ever match that I watched was Bjorn Borg against John McEnroe in 1981 in the final. Um, So that's what I fell in love with. And then I discovered the other surfaces as time went on. And look, it sounds like such a cop-out, but I, I genuinely love all three surfaces I don't, know, I don't know whether equal is correct because I love them in different ways. You know, clay court matches, if you get the wrong type of players who are just going to, if you go back to the early 80s and watch these two guys looping the ball back to one another for, for four and a half, five hours, that's pretty boring. You don't get that anymore in quite the same way because they've got so much more power and the strings and the racket technology is so much better to have these quick fire rallies. On grass, they've kind of also changed it to move back into the center ground so that you can have rallies on grass that you didn't used to be able to have. So I love I love the fact that they're all different. You know, I love the fact that we go straight from a clay court tournament at the French Open to the grass. 
and they they look so different. You've got this vivid orange, and then you've got this deep green uh, at Wimbledon and Queens and all these other tournaments. And there's a softness to the surface, and you can hear the pitter patter of the footsteps as the players are running up to the ball because they can't afford to slide into it in quite the same way. So I I love the difference really, and and I suppose you you probably get that in golf when you go from links courses to others and different parts mm-hmm. of the world. Yeah. 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 I, that's exactly what I was thinking and commend you for a very, very, uh, political, great, great answer there. Uh, you know, I, I love them all. I, I, I couldn't possibly pick one over the I'd, other. I'd love to say there's one that I really hate. Um, <laughs> but I mean, you know, I used, I used to think the French open was going to be a really poor relation, uh, amongst the four grand slams. And then I went to it last month for the first time ever and I fell in love with it. Yeah. So, yeah. you know, I, I, I can't believe my luck that I get to work in the sport, to be honest. Yeah. Well, good, good for you. Uh, well, let's then say in, in your opinion, who, who are the favorites going into Wimbledon on the men's and women's side? Who, who deserves to, to have that person to beat status? Yeah, it's, it's an interesting year. I think obviously it's interesting in a way that we wouldn't want, want it to be and that Daniel Medvedev is not going to be able to play. Um, and, and certain other players, Arena Sabalenka on the, the women's side, who was a, a semi-finalist last year, not going to be able to play. But there's still, there's a load of interesting stories out there. Uh, I mean, I'll, I'll start with the, with the women's side because we have a, a truly dominant player at the moment in Iga Świątek of Poland, who picked up the baton from Ash Barty of Australia, who won Wimbledon last year. She then went and won the Australian Open. And we were doing podcasts about how she's going to dominate for years to come. And then two months later, she retired yeah. <laughs> and just decided she, and, and fair play to her. She was just, she's a, a 25 year old woman who wants a lot more out of life than just to play tennis. And she kind of fulfilled all of her dreams. And then suddenly this, uh, this young player, 21 years of age, she is now Iga Sviantek, who'd been around and won the French Open a couple of years ago. She picked up the baton and just has dominated ever since. She's, she's won 35 matches in a row and she's won every major tournament going for the last three three or four months and she's also a, a Wimbledon junior champion but it is still of all the surfaces it's the one that she doesn't really know whether she's going to be able to carry this on so that she's the she has to be the favorite being on that run but there is a question mark because the the surface is quite particular um uh, I'm very impressed with what I saw from Coco Goff, the young American, reaching the French Open final recently. And we know she can play well on grass because she she had a breakout moment um, three years ago when she when she beat Venus Williams in, in the first round and several other players as well. But the truth is, on the women's side, aside from Iga Svantec, there's a real depth of possibilities. It's It's more like, I feel looking at a golf tournament where you just you could make a case for so many players having a chance below that one top player. Um, there's Ons Jabur from Tunisia who's, who's got great hands and ability with spin and that kind of thing. And then we've we've just had the news that Serena Williams is going to be playing, which I've got to be honest with you, Randy, that's us by <laughs> surprise. We, I think somebody asked us, I think we raised it the other week, on the podcast, will we ever see Serena Williams in a professional match again? And I said, no. <laughs> so well done me. Uh, but, you know, it just, uh, a year ago, she 
she played at Wimbledon and had to pull out of the match injured with with the kind of injury that you just thought I don't see that healing and then she hasn't played since you know she's just pulled out of every major tournament um can she have a chance I mean I would not want to be the person ruling out Serena Williams because right. you know she's four years of age now which is ridiculous for a tennis player to be that age and still being within, in with a chance but she's that good you know she's won 23 Grand Slam singles titles and she's so determined to to match the all-time record which is 24 that I don't know I wouldn't rule her out that's uh, I, I was going to ask you about Serena eventually too and and that's my perception is it's a lot like Tiger Woods too. I think, mm. you know, comparing it back to, to golf um, in the sense that by this point, Tiger, and I assume Serena is the same way. They're not going to show up if they think they have a chance to be embarrassed or, or they're totally unprepared. So I agree. Uh, yeah, her, her decision to play tells me that, you know, Hey, she at least feels like she can be, very competitive and I for one cannot wait to, <laughs> to to see her play well that's the thing I think we've seen enough over the last few years through what Tiger did at the Masters that time because I, I remember listening to your podcast afterwards and I couldn't wait to listen to it and you were really all struggling to make sense of what you'd seen I mean you yeah. you still did a good job but it was like how do you how can you make make sense of this and and then um, you had it with Mickelson last year. We've had it, we had it with Roger Federer coming back after knee surgery. Then Rafael Nadal wins the Australian Open this year, having said that he almost retired a couple of months earlier because he just couldn't stand the foot pain anymore. You know that, but these sort of people, they breathe different air to us. I think yeah. they they have a sense of self confidence and belief baked in, instilled from all those years, those decades of dominance, where they just think, well. If I'm if I'm can if I can move and I can pick the thing up and hit the ball, I can win. Yeah, and and I I, I certainly have seen enough to believe that that's still possible. Well, going back then to Iga Swiatek, uh, she's 21 years old. You, you said she's won 35 matches in a row, which uh, I I saw only trails Novak Djokovic and Roger Federer respectively for the longest. Uh, match win streak i believe this century she's won her last six tournaments uh obviously the french open her second grand slam what is her mass appeal do you, do you think she you know is she mar- I, I and i hate asking this because it's like it's unfair to her individually but but in terms of how people view tennis and you know i i think in golf and tennis alike there's a desire to have you know, that, that one dominating presence that you can market and sell. And, you know, it, it really drives interest in the game. I, how do you think she fits, will fit into that role? Yeah, it's a, it's a, it's a great question. It is a relevant question because I've just talked about the kind of depth, the pool of talent, and, and that, are, that are all very exciting to me as a tennis nerd and, and people that I know. But how do you, how do you make people care? That's the, the the question mark with when I'm commentating or talking on the podcast. How do I make? How do I communicate these people? How do you make them care? And look, the, you need rivalries, you, but you need dominant rivals. Ideally, you know, you you guys are always talking about if you could just have that moment where Tiger and Phil or uh, these other guys are at exactly. the top at the same time, playing their best at the same time. You had it the other the other week with Rory McIlroy and Justin Thomas. You know, we we're looking for the same thing. We want Naomi Osaka. And 
Igor Fiontech. We don't want Ash Barty retiring just when it's about to get good, you know? Um, and, and she's dominating the circuit and then Sviantec comes along. So I think domination is good until it just becomes a procession. And what you need is you need somebody to challenge her. So, and I think that there are players out there who can um, in, in the fullness of time. I think mentioned Coco Goff. I, I mean, look, she's still some way short in terms of her game, but I think that she's got the potential uh, Naomi Osaka, I definitely think can because she's already won four Grand Slam titles. But you know, you talk about grass court tennis. Osaka really doesn't know how to play grass court tennis. She just doesn't know how to move on it at all. Um, and then we have uh, a young British girl, Emma Raducanu, who won the U.S. Open last year out of nowhere. And players like that have got so much to offer. They're such engaging personalities. They're really exciting players. I think that Sviantec needs to be able to keep this up. I think, you know, yes, she's not from a huge market uh, out of birth like the United States, but she's such a good player, such an exciting player. She wants it so much that I think she can carry this on. And then what she needs is somebody to come up and challenge her and make every match exciting because you need you need an Evert to an Avratilova. You need a Selesh to a Graf. These are the sort of things that make people just want to know, well, who's the best? Um, and, that, and that's that. I do think the potential is there. Absolutely. So if I ask you to put your prognosticator hat on, you know, I, I know the, the British like a good gamble. Who, who, who do you think maybe among those, those names that you mentioned, Osaka, Coco Goff, Raducanu, uh, or perhaps others, who, who do you like to rise up and really be that main challenger in time? Well, I think in time, I would definitely look at Emma Raducanu because I think that she has similar gifts, really, to Sviantec, being a complete player, being a natural athlete, being balanced, having a real tennis IQ and mind. You know, we've, we saw it, the fact that she was a teenager and she just went and won the US Open as a qualifier. But she's got a lot to deal with. You know, the, her world has just been turned upside down in the space of 12 months from being down on less than what would be the equivalent of the Corn Ferry Tour a year ago to suddenly winning the whole thing at the US Open and, and the, her, her life changing. Um, but I, So give her two years is what I would say for Raducanu. Um, for right now, I, I think there is a chance that for the rest of this year, Sviantec could pretty much dominate. I think she could, she could go and win Wimbledon in the US Open as well. Um, but I think Someone like Wimbledon, who's very good on the specific surface, someone like Onstubur of Tunisia, who can just, in fact, she beat Sviantec at Wimbledon last year, sort of player who can just do things that make it awkward because she's, she's un, unorthodox. Um, but it's, it feels more likely that domination is the most likely thing to happen this year. Sorry to interrupt, but I want to thank one more sponsor of today's episode, and that is our good friends at Roback. Roback Activewear, they have been gaining traction big time. I have to say we love the fit and feel of their gear. The quality is simply top-notch. Three products I want to talk about specifically. First, their performance polos fit so much better than your typical boxy polo. They have wonderful designs. The four-way stretch material is next level and wrinkle-free while the collars never lose their shape. Combine all of it, and that's why Roback polos are simply unmatched. 
Second, their performance quarter zips are a game changer when it comes to spring golf. They're so soft, you'll be throwing darts all day. Perfect for a crisp early morning 18, a run around the block, a day in the office, or a night out. They are the definition of versatile. And then finally, Roback's performance hoodies are legitimately the most comfortable hoodies we've worn on the course and off. Hands down the softest, stretchiest hoodies in golf. These things are just asking to be worn out on the links. Nothing beats seeing someone wearing that subtle dog logo and giving them that little nod because you know they get it. And I have to say I'm seeing more and more and more Roback, which is wonderful to see. Listeners right now, use the code TRAP, T-R-A-P, on Roback.com for a generous 20% off your first order through the end of this week. That's spelled R-H-O-B-A-C-K.com. 20% off all polos, Q-zips, hoodies, and tees with code TRAP. Trust us when we say you can't beat Roback. Check them out now. Can't thank them enough for being a great sponsor of the Trap Draw. And now back to the episode. Well, I'd love to drill down into, into a couple of these names. Um, let's start with, with Emma Raducanu. You guys on your last podcast episode uh, spent a little time talking about her. She just withdrew because of injury from her, her most recent tournament. Um, I, I think she's someone people naturally worry might get consumed by the just media circus that envelops an 18 year old that comes out of nowhere to win the U S open last fall and how that changes her life. And just the, the, the attention and the sponsorships and, you know, uh, so much effort and emotion and time is now devoted to non-tennis activities. My question for you is, and I think I know your answer, but would, would love to hear your perspective is you're, you're confident she'll emerge from this whirlwind to, to, to really back up that U S open victory. I I'm, I, I guess I, in, in this year since, or I, you know, maybe eight months since that, that win uh, in New York. Yeah. It just is like, man, is, is, is she going to make it or is, is she going to be kind of a, a one hit wonder? And I think that's, that's both fascinating and if it if it goes kind of the the one hit wonder route it's 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 also could be very sad as well a, a cautionary tale yeah well we've seen both examples over the years and i think you can't just say yes you'll be fine because you, you we don't know it's it's such a a difficult thing that she's trying to navigate it's wonderful as well i mean look the scenes of her winning that title without dropping a set. She had to win 10 matches to win the US Open. Normally you have to win seven. It's never been done before that a qualifier wins wins a Grand Slam, and she did it aged 18. Um, but yeah, her world did change, and her agents did a brilliant job of assembling a portfolio of big deal sponsors. And, you know, that's their job, and they've done a great job of it. But it does put more pressure on. It does make people, I uh, know I had, I think I had um, people that I sort of meet on the street or just fellow parents at the school gates or, or at my son's football coming up to me and saying, what's wrong with Emma Raducanu? She lost a match. She, she lost this morning. You know, and these were, these were just like, the first couple of matches since she just won the US Open. But everybody in the country watched that match when she beat Leila Fernandez in the final. There were there was a more than a quarter of human beings in the country who watched that live together that that night. More probably more, 
Um, but people don't know that that actually you you lose more than you win in tennis. And um, my feeling is that she's going to end up being fine in the end. Um, but I, I'm barely taking notice of her results for the next two years because I don't think it's fair. She is a rookie who somehow won the US Open and has the most prodigious talent imaginable. She is an incredible talent. And in two years' time, if she can handle this situation and be guided in the right way where she needs it, I think she's going to be vying with Iga Svantec for the biggest titles in the sport and is such an engaging character. And, you know, my, my daughter loves those two, you know, and, and she's 12 years old. And th these are the sort of things that, that I want to be seeing in the future. But I, it does worry me. It does worry me, Randy, because, um, you know, she's, she's already had a stalker, you know, and had to go to court to, to have an injunction put out. She's having people look at every single thing that she does on the court and assessing it and judging her. And um, it's not easy. It's, not, it's wonderful, but it's not easy. So I just give her time is all, is all I would say. Amen to that. Um, yeah, and I, I'm right there with you. Rooting for um, would be would be so awesome if if she really fulfills all that potential on a on a consistent basis. Naomi Osaka, do you guys do you guys find it difficult to discuss Naomi Osaka and just all that goes into that? I, I'm curious how you guys feel about her, both on and off the court. I, I think she can be. A little polarizing, just in the sense of, um, especially with her, with her, you know, not wanting to speak to the media and and the debate that that kicked off. And um, I, I just don't know, I, I just don't know what's going on there, because, like you said, prodigious talent uh, has won four Grand Slams. But what 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 does the future hold for her? Do you think? Great question. I, I've I asked you a lot know. of questions. No, in that one question, but it's, but just it's such a a weird difficult situation for me she's, to wrap my head around. She's such an interesting human being and she's not really like anybody else that I can think of that I've come across in the sports because she's so many different things. And as a tennis player, she's irresistible when she's on form. She can, she can make opponents irrelevant in terms of what they're trying to do. Um, pretty much only on a hard court though. She hasn't figured out the other surfaces, at the same time, she's suffered badly with mental health issues and has told us that she's suffered from depression. And at the same time, is um, you know, he's trying to navigate this professional life in the spotlight. And once again, her agents have done a, a fantastic job of, of assembling a portfolio of, of sponsors, um, all of which does take time from her and, and puts pressure on her. And I, I have no problem with with players having these these uh, commitments whatsoever. But I I do accept that it it is difficult sometimes to to keep it all together, to keep everything going. And uh, as regards what she said in terms of not wanting to speak to the media, she she got that wrong. I think initially in the way she handled it um, by just suddenly coming out and saying, I'm not doing it. And uh, the French Open was upon us. I think the tours and the Grand Slams made a, a terrible error in 
just coming down on her so hard and immediately saying, right, well, we're going to fine you increasing amounts for every single one you you don't attend because press conferences in tennis are compulsory. And so it became this massive standoff. She then says, okay, well, I think the fairest thing for me to do would be to pull out of the tournament. And so nobody wins, you know, and, and, and so how do we talk about her? I mean, we do find it difficult to completely understand what she's going through and to relate. But at the same time, I think it's a real education to us all because it makes me think, well, just because every other player I've come across is one way, why does she have to be the same? She's a different kind of human being. And that's been for wonderful causes like her standing up for social injustices during the US Open when she won it a couple of years ago and having the names of all, all those people on her masks, you know, those are, those are images that will stay with me forever. And I think were really important messages and important stands that she took. Um, and she's trying to do more with her career than just win tennis tournaments. But it's, it is difficult to know where she fits. And I think that she's probably taught us all that maybe we just need to, to not be so regimented and that you must do this and you have to be like that. Um, and again, I, I just end up, wish her the best because I think she's a good human being. Something I've felt is uh, sometimes it feels like her intentions can be very good. And whether on advice of, you know, her agents and, and the people around her, it seems like sometimes though she just can't get out of her own way. Yeah. I think, that, with- I think she, I'd agree with that. I think she's made mistakes and actually I think, I think she's, she's certainly admitted to one or two of them. Uh, yeah. But we all make mistakes, don't we? Let's be honest. Of course. <laughs> many, <laughs> many. Um, well, the last one I, I wanted to specifically ask you about, uh, the, 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 the last woman is Layla Fernandez. Uh, mm. she, she was in the U.S. Open final last fall against uh, Raducanu. What, what's her long-term potential? What, what's her kind of staying power amongst the, the best of the best in, on, in the women's game? Mm. She, she's somebody who... Unlike Naomi Osaka, I I wouldn't have seen this coming from her. I, I think she's a tenacious competitor, and I love watching her play. But it's it's a grind, you know. She is not going to knock people off the court. She is not going to use her physical attributes to just dominate the opponents. But she has something else. She has a tenacity and a and a strength of mind that wins her tennis matches. She's one of the most strong mental players that I've seen. Plus she's, she engages with a crowd and draws fuel for them and gives them fuel that she creates this whirlwind in a, in a, in a match situation that ends up engulfing an opponent. And uh, it's, it's kind of like years ago, watching a Jimmy Connors or someone like that, just creating this occasion. And uh, I think she's, a, she's electric. Um, the uh, the former player and commentator Pam Shriver says she's the best show in the sport, and I, I think that there's a lot to be said for that. It's um it's sad that she's just got an injury after the French Open that I think is going to keep her out for quite a while. Um, and I do feel that there's probably a ceiling because she just doesn't have the weapons that some of the others have. But um, she's a great watch. I mean, she you know you could put her match of hers onto somebody who knows nothing about tennis, and people will get into it. I wasn't, I, her injury status had, uh, escaped me that that is too bad. All right. Well, let's, let's flip to the men's side then. 
And um, we've we've mentioned world number one Medvedev will be out of the out of Wimbledon. Uh, what's the status on Alexander Zverev? Will his ankle heal in time, or, or is he possibly at risk to uh, to miss Wimbledon? I don't think he plays Wimbledon. Um, he he's had a surgery actually uh, in order to accelerate his recovery. Um, I mean, it was a if 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 you didn't see him turning his ankle in a match that he was. He was right in there against Nadal. I mean, he he was he causes Nadal trouble with this type of game he's got, um, and he was right in there. And it was a, it was a sickening ankle turn, one of the worst I've ever seen on a tennis court. So he's going to be out for, I think, most of the summer. I think that he, his goal is to is to be back for the U.S. Open. That's that's what he's trying to trying to achieve. Um, but yeah, you're going to be without effectively the world's one and two ranked players. Although, to me, they don't feel like the numbers one and two ranked players because that's Nadal and Djokovic. Well, and then turning to those two, obviously Nadal will be trying to make it three for three in, in slams this year. Um, who, who do you give the edge to uh, in terms of, you know, if you had to pick one, Novak or Rafa at Wimbledon? Well, Novak Djokovic is the better grass court player in terms of um, his skill set suits it more, I think. And he's won it more times. Nadal was regarded as a clay quarter when he first came along. And he has these looping, top-spinning ground strokes. And um, which, are, I mean, he's won the French Open 14 times. But he still managed to beat Roger Federer at Wimbledon in probably the greatest match any of us have ever seen in 2008. But he's not, he's not as natural on the surface. And he hasn't played it for... A number of years he hasn't played it because the surface always used to give him trouble with his knees. And I, I honestly thought after he won that French Open, I thought he would ditch Wimbledon and just try to rest up. Well, that's not the case. Um, now, he might he might not make it. By the time you listen to this, we may have found out that he's not fit because he has these terrible foot problems, but he's intending to play if he can. If he's fit, he will play. And... Whilst I don't think it suits him as well as it does Djokovic, the guy's just won the first two major titles of the year. And we didn't really expect him to win either of those. And so his confidence is through the roof. He's now won 22 Grand Slam singles titles. You've got Djokovic on 20. You've got Roger Federer, who can't play Wimbledon because of injury. He's on 20. And then you've got Pete Sampras down there on 14. If you, the great Pete Sampras is nowhere near nowhere near these guys anymore, so it's 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 a race for history. It's the all time race for history. These three, um, and so I would say Djokovic is the favourite. He's the defending champion, but you can't count Nadal out. If he's if he's fit and he plays, he's got steam coming out of his nostrils. This guy when he plays, you know, people are so intimidated by him. Um, so. I'd go Djokovic, but wow, would I love Nadal to be playing. And for the for the casual tennis fan who might know that Rafa, hey, he won the Australian, he won the French, life must be good. Can you can you speak to the precariousness of Nadal right now because of his foot and because you know at, at any moment it seems like I, I know you guys discussed on the podcast you wouldn't have been surprised had he retired. Um, can, can you just speak to a little bit of how on knife's edge, I guess, no pun intended with, with surgeries and whatnot, Nadal kind of is right now in terms of his career. 
Well, he has a chronic foot condition that he's had throughout his life, really, and certainly throughout most of his tennis career, which has just got worse over the years. Um, and towards the end of last year, the things that he was having to do to be ready for tennis, the training he was trying to do, he was in such pain all the time, even in just everyday life, that he was very close to not wanting to play anymore, I think. He, he just thought he'd run out of ideas and run out of solutions. Um, he played a French Open match last year, and he, by the end of it, he could he could barely walk up the stairs. You know, he was in such agony. Um, but he managed to get himself out to play the Australian Open at the start of the year. And I think we, you know, we, we don't need the draws to make crazy predictions, to be <laughs> honest, Randy. We just throw them out there. And I don't, I don't think any one of us had him even in the quarterfinals of the Australian Open. Wow. And genuinely couldn't see it. And he went and won it. And he won it from two sets to love down against Medvedev in the final. It was one of the most jaw-dropping feats I've ever seen in sport. Um, he then goes and in the spring of this year uh, at a hardcourt tournament, he, 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 he got a stress fracture of a rib while he was playing. And that kept him out of most of the clay court season. He plays in Rome, which is the main warm-up tournament for, for the French Open. He played that in May. And in the third set of a match against a Canadian player, Denis Shapovalov, he looked in such agony that he was he was kind of just walking between shots. He wasn't trying to, he couldn't run properly. And again, I'm looking at this, this guy cannot even properly walk. He can't win the French Open. So again, he's not even in, he's going to lose to Djokovic in the quarterfinals. We all said that. <laughs> He'll somehow get there and then that will happen. And um, But at the start of the tournament, you know, we asked him, well, how, how bad's the foot? And he said, look, I'll tell you about the foot when my tournament is over. He won the tournament. <laughs> so he hasn't beat Djokovic. He wins the tournament. And then he comes in the press conference and he gives us chapter and verse about exactly what he has to go through to get ready for these matches. And basically, he brought his doctor with him who was pumping cortisone into that foot for... Mm before each match and effectively just sending the foot to sleep. I mean, how do you run around on that? I mean, he's basically on a foot that he can't feel. And, um, but he said at the end of it, he said, I cannot do that again. You know, I could easily break my leg or turn my ankle in a way that would never recover. Um, so he had another kind of procedure on it sort of to burn the nerve. Um, that's the idea and, and stop sending the pain signals to the brain, which he's just, had and the hope is that that will work and enable him to play Wimbledon if it doesn't he said I've got to have a major surgery that will well may well threaten my career because you know there's there's life after tennis that he's thinking about so it really is on a knife edge and um personally I just I feel like we're really lucky that, that he's even playing at all and uh, and if he plays Wimbledon great it's unbelievable it's it's simply unbelievable and I I think one thing that I have learned over these last couple of years is just to take the time to, to watch him compete, to, to be thankful that, you know, every major big moment that we get to watch him in now is it, it's, it feels a little bit like icing on the cake and, and to make sure I'm just appreciating, I guess, his greatness well, for lack of I mean, a better term. And then just aside from his tennis, the final thing I'd say about him is I've never seen an athlete be able to live in the moment quite like he can. And I've never seen him throw a racket. 
in 17 years of watching him. He's never thrown one down. He he just puts disappointment behind him and immediately focuses on the next point. There's nobody quite like him. Um, on Novak, how, how do how is Novak received in London at Wimbledon? It is in terms of the the fans and you know. It, do you sense that they pull for him? Is it a bit antagonistic? How, how, how is Novak's relationship with the uh, with the British people? It is a complicated relationship, I would say. Um, look, he has a a hardcore of fans that you know they really go for him and they live on his every move. And crikey, I've had to block a lot of them on Twitter. Anyway, um, you know, you know what that's like. But and I mean, it's they're the most diehard fans, um, his fans. And look, I think people have over the years, he, he's been in a very difficult position because Federer dominated, then Nadal came along as the rival, and then they had this amazing rivalry and everybody loved it. And then Djokovic came along and started beating both of them and now has a winning record against both of them and is trying to become the greatest all of all time statistically. And it really winds up all the Federer fans and it winds up all the Nadal fans. Um, and so nobody likes Novak Djokovic because of those reasons, the people that really support Federer and Nadal anyway. And I, I think there is a bit of threes a crowd, to, to be honest, uh, in terms of how he's viewed. He's also, look, he's done a, a, lot, a number of things that have really not gone down very well, being unvaccinated and, um, and making no apology for it, um, being unvaccinated and doing interviews uh, without telling the journalist that he, that he was unvaccinated. These are, these are things that have not gone down well. He's made a, you know, you talked about Naomi Osaka getting in her own way. Well, Novak Djokovic takes that to a completely different level. He's done it time after time after time over the years. Um, I also think, you know, he does a lot, he does a hell of a lot of good as well. He's, he, he's an incredibly philanthropic kind of guy, but he's, he does it all in his own way. And it doesn't always get, he doesn't always get his message across in quite the way that, that he would want, I think, to people. Um, and the British, certainly the crowds at Wimbledon, I think one of the issues is he's the dominant player and, and people, We'll probably start to appreciate him a little bit more when he's not quite so good. That tends to happen, yeah. I think. You know, yeah. even Lendl used to have that. Um, several players do, um, but it's there's not the universal love that there is for Roger Federer and Rafael Nadal, and I don't think there ever will be. Kind of getting deeper into the men's side, I'm fascinated, and I'd love your opinion on this because, in my mind, we have obviously we've had the big three. And and even Andy Murray and, and guys who have, you know, kind of been around that that big three for a number of years. But it seems like we have a couple of younger cohorts developing. And one is is guys, you know, kind of in their mid 20s, your, your Alexander Zverevs, uh, Sitsipas, um, Chapovalov from from Canada. Uh, I, I kind of place in in one cohort. And then it, it seems like we have an even younger cohort coming on with Carlos Alcaraz and uh, Yannick Sinner. Holger Rune just made a run at the French Open. I, so my question, I guess, is, is should these guys all just kind of be together in one you know, young cohort? Or what I'm really curious is if, if 
Alcaraz and Sinner and, and Rune, if they're eventually going to kind of take over that mantle from the big three and, and we have guys like Zverev and Tsitsipas who have, I don't want to say missed their opportunity, but maybe haven't taken advantage of some of the opportunities with the big three getting older and before these, these young guys really burst on the scene. Does, does mm. that make sense? What totally. I, I guess what I'm trying to get at. Yeah. Well, it makes total sense to me. And actually, I think what's happened is that the big three and before that, the big four, when Andy Murray was, was definitely a big part of that, you know, and he was world number one and grandson champion, et cetera. They've carried on playing for so long and they're still so good that I think that we, we are now into the second generation of players that is missing its opportunity and missing its window. Because the first one was another Canadian player, Milos Raonic and Kane Ishikuri and Grigor Dimitrov, who we all said eight years ago were going to take over, and they didn't because they, they just weren't as good as these guys. Yeah. Um, so they've kind of, they're now in their 30s. Um, and then you've got the mid-20s guys that you've mentioned. Now, look, Zverev and Sitsipas, they are knocking on the door. Um, but they've kind of reached a bit of a, a ceiling. The, these guys are still there. That's the, the truth of the matter is it's still Djokovic and Nadal who, who are preventing them from going through the door. Um, for me... The one to watch out for is Carlos Alcaraz. Yeah. And he is, he can't be grouped in with any of those others, I don't think. I understand why you've done it because of the ages, et cetera. But if you watch him play, he has the raw materials to be like the big three, I feel. Now, look, he hasn't won anything yet. Um, and I, I, said, I said at the start of the year, I'm going to pick him for the French Open. Whoops. Well, he didn't win the French Open. But I mean, look, nobody was picking him then. So I went out on a limb and I had a go. Um, but if you just watch, you know, he beat Nadal and Djokovic on consecutive days on clay in Madrid in May. That's never happened before. Um, and Djokovic was playing quite well that day and he still couldn't beat him. He's just got, physically, he's got everything. He's He's as quick as they are. In fact, now he's quicker because he's 19 and they're 36. Mm-hmm. Um, he's got immense power on both forehand and backhand. He's got a, a, a drop shot that is like a feather of a shot that is that they can't see coming. And he just, he loves the sport like Nadal loves the sport. So raw materials wise, he's the, he's the man. And he, he could be winning for years to come. And, and I think that if anybody's going to, slam the door on Zverev and Sitsipas, it's going to be him. He'll just take over from those guys at the top. And and he's the one that, you know, a casual tennis fan like me, his, his skills and his potential just leap off the television screen. Mm. Uh, oh, he's electrifying. More so. Yeah. More, more so than any of these other guys that I've, I've had the chance to watch. So if we put Alcaraz as kind of the clear number one amongst this younger generation, I guess I'm curious where how you would kind of slot the other guys, uh, and if you want to include Zverev and and Sitsipas, please feel free. But I guess I'm I'm also curious, like Sinner and and Sebastian Corda, Holger Rune, um, the the Canadian Oje Ali Asim is mm. is in that conversation. How, how do you right now kind of power rank those guys in terms of? where they are, and I, I guess also with an eye towards where they might end up as well. 
Yeah, if, well, if you remove Alcaraz, I think you, you have to put Sitsipas and Zverev pretty much together, just as they're kind of perennial semi-finalists at Grand Slams, really, and then they run into Nadal and Djokovic. Now, sometimes they beat them, or sometimes one of them gets injured, or sometimes one of them hits a ball and it hits a line judge and he gets disqualified, <laughs> et cetera, et cetera. But those two are the ones just below. And then you've got this pack of young guys that – They've shown their potential. They're making some strides, but they're not bursting out of the pack. And I put Sinner and Ogelia seem they're in together. They're 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 very quick. They hit the ball in very hard, but they feel a little bit mechanical still to me. They don't feel as though they've they've got that natural instinct the way Alcaraz does, for instance. He just he just senses the moment and he embraces it. Um, so I put all the others in there together, really. Um, Shapovalov, the same. Um, someone like Holger Rune, I think he he's new, so he might be a little bit different because he's even newer. And uh, and at the moment, he doesn't have any of the sort of mental baggage that the others have. These guys have lost too many times, a lot of the, a lot of them. Um, so it's it's such a mental challenge for them to either. You've seen it at the majors to beat these guys when they're at the best because Nadal and Djokovic are not the same players in Madrid and Rome as they are at the French Open and and, and Wimbledon. They're just different animals when they get there. Um, but yeah, so I'd, I'd go the big three, then the two below. Obviously, Zverev's out of the equation. Um, Medvedev would be in there as well, and sure. he's already won one. Um, and then you've got this pack, but actually, there's not. Like Wimbledon doesn't have that many obvious male contenders for this title, really. It really doesn't. Without Medvedev, without Zverev, Tsitsipas isn't very good on grass. Matteo Berrettini, who was in the final last year, he's a proper grass court player with a huge serve and forehand. He's got a chance. Um, but really, Djokovic stands out. And then there's just this X factor to Alcaraz, because I've never even seen him play on grass. I've never seen him step foot on it. So... You know, but I would, I would, I would rearrange my week to watch that kid play tennis. Yeah, yeah. Uh, last question. Then you mentioned Berrettini on the men's side. Uh, perhaps some some names you like. I, I don't know if it's fair to call them dark horses, both on the men's and women's side. That uh, specifically for Wimbledon, that that maybe we haven't touched upon. And anybody that stands out for you? Yeah, I, th- I definitely think. Um, Berrettini is in that pack. I, I like, um, you mentioned Sebastian Corda, who's a brother of Jessica and Nelly Corda, um, and has a, a dad who was a Grand Slam champion. He, he's 6'5". He's a, a, a kind of a smooth ball striker, um, actually likes to come and get to the net and hit volleys, which a lot of players don't do these days. But again, it feel, he doesn't feel like he's made the next step just yet. He's, he's stuck a little bit. Um, so I'd, pr- I'd probably go Berrettini feels reliable. Um, the interesting one is if he's fit, and this sounds crazy because he's 35 now, but Andy Murray still, even with a metal hip, even given that we thought he was done four years ago, he's playing the sort of tennis if, he's, if he can be fit that could go deep into the second week. Um the other player, honestly, I find it really hard to pick out dark horses on on the men's side because I don't have a lot of faith in many of them um, yeah. because they just haven't shown it. I think it's going to be mostly the people that you you expected to be. Yeah, yeah. 
I lied. I'm not sure if I said last question before, but I lied because this is my last question. Not specific to Wimbledon, not specific to grass court. I'm curious who some of your favorite players to watch are that obviously are outside of the the top names in tennis, uh, both on the, it could be men's or women's both. Um, and, and I'll give you one that that I have that I've, I've watched them play. Um, I think it was the beginning of the year. What, what's the team competition they had at the very beginning? Uh, the, of the ATP Cup. Yeah, I saw the the Frenchman, the the lefty Ugo Ember play. Oh yeah, and I think he beat Medvedev maybe in in a match there. And it was like, holy smokes, this guy! I, obviously, when he's on, he he I he's world class. He can beat anybody. Um, yeah. And obviously, the the big if is when he's on. Uh, he's he's and that's not the on to that extent. Yeah, but but he's somebody well, I was like just transfixed by. I'm curious anybody like that who week to week, uh, even at some of these lesser tournaments, you, you really enjoy watching them play tennis. Well, I mean, the thing with a guy like Umber is he he's somebody who can kind of beat the best players in the world, but never be one of the best players in the yeah. world. And it's really weird. I don't understand why that is, but he will turn up and he's just an awkward guy to play and he gets ex- excited and fired up and suddenly he's just, you're looking at him and you think, how is this guy not not the best player in the world? That's or, why I'm like, oh, he'll be top 10 in no time. It's like, yeah, nah, he just, you know, first round exit. Like, man, what's going on? On the women's side, the same thing with Ons Jabeur, I mentioned earlier, who's got many of the same skill set as Ash Barty. She hits slices and dinks and drop shots and she has power. She has everything. Well, why is she eight in the world and not one in the world? You know, it's, it's difficult to know at, at times when you see these people. I mean, look, Nick Kyrgios is another guy with talent coming out of his ears and power and athleticism and ability. But he's he can't handle it. He can't and 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 I don't want to judge too too much because I just don't think he's cut out for it. Um but he will look like he's going to win a tournament and then just somebody stands up to him and he can't handle it. He has a meltdown and you know, it's, it's headlines every time he plays. It's very entertaining, but actually I'm slightly getting tired of it now. Um, there's so many great players to watch. You know, Gael Monfils, unfortunately, is injured at the moment. Again, just a highlight real player, but not a serial winner. Um, I'm trying to think on the men's side, who 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 I- might... Another guy I've, I've really enjoyed, and I he might be injured. You, you would probably know this, is... The American kid Jensen Brooksby, mm. I, I, just because he seems very unorthodox, he doesn't look yeah. like he he should be able to compete. Uh, now he's he's world class players, but he's he's brilliant on a hard court. And I think when you get into the U.S. hard court season of Canada and Cincinnati, and then the U.S. Open, he can be dangerous. He's another one of these. He doesn't know how to play on clay, and he doesn't know how to play on grass. And you can I've watched him the last few weeks have a go. And he looks like he's really not sure how to stand up when he's trying to hit the ball. Um, so, you know, it's such a, a different type of challenge for him. But he's he's fun to watch because he's different. And he also, he doesn't have that scar tissue mentally. He believes that he can beat everybody. Um, and that's what I like the most with young players who come along and just think, well, why not? I, I beat everybody on the way up. I'm just going to carry on. And then they suddenly have this uh, total realization that it's not quite as easy as they thought when they get to the top level. But um, yeah, I, I like Jensen Brooksby as well. He's, he's well worth the admission. Yeah. 
Uh, well, David, this is, I, it's such a treat for me to be able to talk tennis. I, I, I obviously just a novice, but I've, I've really loved getting into the game and, and certainly your tennis podcast. I would recommend to anybody with even a passing interest in the game. It, it's a great way to stay up to date and, and learn about some of these new players. Um, and so can't, can't thank you enough also for, for listening and, and supporting us with the, with the no laying up podcast. Uh, just a, a real treat for me to get to talk to you today. So thank you very much. Well, the same, the same for me, Randy. I mean, all, all of you guys just do an incredible job, I think. And, you know, we watch all your stuff. We listen to everything you talk about and <laughs> take ideas down. But I mean, no, you make, you make golf accessible to me. I don't, I watch the majors and the Ryder Cup, but I stay up to date with, with what's going on through you guys. And that's kind of what we try to do as well. Wonderful. Well, when I do make it over to Wimbledon someday, would, would love to have a beer with you. Maybe we can watch some tennis. Sounds good to me.